You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 73. If you're new here, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome to Citizens Church. We're so thrilled uh, that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you're uh, watching online, whether it's your first time or you've been doing this uh, for a long time, we're, we're glad that you're joining us as well. Um, in Psalm 73, uh, this morning we're going to answer uh, a really simple question. Uh, the, the, the question is simply stated. It's actually complicated to answer, but what we're going to be doing is, is answering the question, how do I talk to God about my doubt? How do I talk to God about my doubt? Uh, we're making a slight change to what we said we were going to do, uh, the, at least to the sermon schedule. If you've been here the past few weeks, we were supposed to today start a, a sermon series on the church. We're going to delay that till later in the fall. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, in the Psalms. Everybody okay with that? Yeah. Great. I had no pl- If you all yelled no, I don't know what I would have done. I have- <laughs> Band, come back up. Um, in November of 2018, I went on sabbatical, an eight-week sabbatical. If you're unfamiliar with that, uh, sabbatical is something that pastors, ministers do, or, or anybody really could, uh, where you uh, take time off of work to rest and spend time with God and spend time with family and, and hopefully kind of uh, fill back up after, after being poured out. And it was my first um, sabbatical. It was actually to be off of work for eight weeks. It was the longest I had not worked since eighth grade. And so I was, um, I was really expectant. I had really, really high hopes for what would happen for me on sabbatical. Specifically, I thought I would read 50 books, and I thought I would get super fit, and I would come out of sabbatical as this spiritually, physically healthy super pastor. That was my plan. And that didn't happen. Instead of uh, 50 books, I read maybe a few books. Instead of getting really fit, I ate a ton of queso during that time. So... But there were two things that happened that, that stuck with me, two things that, that changed for me, really, that, that still mark my life today. The first is less important, but I, I got really into craft coffee, and I started making craft coffee at home. So just to be clear, by making coffee at home, I don't mean I put the K-cup in the Keurig. Uh, that's disgusting. <laughs> I, I, um, no offense. Maybe a little offense, honestly. Um, I mean, I, I started buying single-origin craft coffee beans and making them with a pour-over Hario V60 and... And somehow, as I'm talking, I'm realizing I've, I have become this really pretentious person. I don't know. The second change, the more significant, more meaningful, is during that eight-week sabbatical, um, I learned how to pray. Uh, or, or better said, I began learning how to pray because I'm, I'm learning. It's a lesson that takes the whole Christian life to, to learn. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I, I knew how to pray in public. Uh, growing up as a pastor's kid in church, that, that actually came pretty easy for me. You know, you just say out loud the things that you've heard other people say, and maybe just try to say them a little better than what they said them. Um, I knew how to pray for a meal. We did that growing up. I, I knew how to pray alone to some extent. I knew how to talk to God about sin and, and confess sin. I knew how to, to thank God for certain things, but I, I really wanted this sabbatical to be meaningful, and so I was talking to a mentor of mine, kind of a mentor counselor, and, and I was like, how do, how do I do this right? And he just said, you know, you're going to need to spend a significant amount of time with God. You're going to have space in your schedule that you usually don't have, and you're going to need to fill that space, a lot of that space, with prayer, talking to God. And he said, and, and, and what that's going to need to look like is, is what you'll really need is to get past and get underneath 
what you would normally pray about. That was kind of his challenge to me. Get underneath the things you would normally pray about and talk to God about the, the deeper things going on in your, in your heart and in your, in your life. And he said, you know, talk to God about your disappointments. Talk to God about the things that you struggle to believe. Talk to God about grace that you've experienced and gratitude and have these deep, unearthing kinds of conversation with God, like linger with him in conversation in that. And without even thinking, I said this, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I've never done that before. I'm, I'm going to need to make a cup of coffee or something. Like, I don't, I don't know how to talk to God like that. And I, I was embarrassed to say that out loud. I, I felt a, a bit of a shame. Uh, I'd been a Christian at that point for more than two decades. I had been in ministry for over a decade. I was moving into a, a lead pastor role of a campus soon to become its own church. And the words coming out of my mouth in that conversation before my sabbatical were, I don't know how to talk to God. I don't. Or at least I don't know how to talk to him like that. I don't know how to talk to him with that kind of honesty. I don't know how to, I don't know how to tarry with God in, in prayer. I, I love Jesus. I've given my life to him. I, I know he loves me. I love him because he first loved me. But I am, if I could be honest, I am so much better at talking about him than I am talking to him. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix that. Do you feel any of that, friend? Like I know most of us would say, especially the Christians in the room, which I think most of us are. If you're not, I'm so glad you're here. But if you're a Christian, you'd, you'd say it at the very least that part of believing what we believe means that prayer should be an important part of our life. In fact, statistically, most Christians pray with, with different levels of, of frequency, right? But is there that kind of prayer in your life? Like, do you know how to talk to God from a place of deep honesty and transparency and vulnerability? Do you know how to get past maybe the normal knee-jerk cultural prayers and, and have a conversation with God about the weighty things in your life? Do you know how to talk to God about your pain? Do you know how to talk to God about your questions? Do you know how to talk to God about the deep joy that's in your life, your hope for the future, your fears? And what I would bet, I don't want to assume, I would bet that some, if not many, if maybe not all of us struggle with that. We have a couple of powerful influences working against us praying like that, that I think it's important to name. Two come to mind. There's this cultural influence um, that makes it really hard to enter into that kind of prayer with God. And it's, it's simply that we are an incredibly distracted people, incredibly distracted. Uh, uh, people who have access to all kinds of information, technology in all of our lives is both a gift and a curse. And to be a people who can always be working and always be entertained and always be connected, we have lots of reasons to be a people to never be praying, to never be having, <laughs> to never be having meaningful conversations with anyone, much less God. And that comes with a cost that we've talked about around here before and we'll continue talking about because it's important. But that kind of consumption, that kind of distraction is not helping anyone grow more mentally healthy. It's not helping anyone grow more relationally healthy. It's certainly not helping us grow more spiritually healthy. Like, there are, uh, I have never asked a person in my life who's really, really godly, really, really wise, who's really, really deep, whose, whose life I admire and want to emulate. I've never asked, hey, what do you do? And heard them, and their response is never. I've never heard them say, you know, I just, I watch a, a ton of cable news and I post a lot to my feed. That's really when I turned the corner with God, when I started doing those things, right? Never heard that from anyone. There's also this religious 
pressure, influence that makes that kind of prayer difficult. And, and it's this, at least in our part of the world, in, in the suburbs where there's, there's still relatively a church on every corner, there's this religious pressure to define or measure our Christian life only by what is visible to others. We talked about this when we walked through Matthew chapter 6. There's this pressure to pretend to be better than we are, pressure to pretend that we're further along than we are, and you only get points in that game for the public parts of your spirituality. Um, coming to church, being in a group, uh, posting spiritual posts. And so it's easy to, we, we've, so, so many of us have been grown up in a culture where we didn't even know it, but it's just easy to undervalue and neglect the hidden parts of the Christian life, like prayer, especially the kind of prayer that sits in honest conversation with God. And I would say I'm in that fight. I'm in that fight. That's how I got to decades of following Jesus, a decade in ministry, and realized not only had I neglected the elementary parts of following Jesus, I wasn't even sure how to begin. So I say that out loud to my mentor. I don't know how to do that. I've never done that before. And he said, I have really good news for you. There is a whole book of prayers written for you that you can pray to God, that can guide you and help you and serve as a model in your life praying to God. And he had me turn to the book that is in front of you in your Bibles right now. He had me turn to the book of Psalms. Psalms is a collection of 150 prayers, songs, and poems that um, the people of God had collected and organized into five books that cover those 150 psalms. And those five books mirror the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the prayer book of the people of God. Uh, it has been for thousands of years. Do you know, who's, you know who learned to pray using psalms? Jesus. One of the books of the Old Testament he quotes most is the Psalms. Fully God, fully human in his humanity was taught to talk to God, learned how by praying the prayers of the Psalms. And so one of the reasons why this book exists is because God wants you to talk to him. God wants prayer. God wants conversation with him to be a vibrant and vital part of what it means to you to be a Christian what it actually means to worship and commune with God. And so what God did is he preserves these prayers. He knew that some of us would not know how to do that. He knew that some of us would feel really behind in that. He knew that, that, that we would need a guide, and so he preserves these prayers that we might have help. And if you just flip through and read the headings, if you just scan through the pages of the book of Psalms, what you'll see is that God wants to talk to us about everything. You'll find a model how to talk to God about blessing, You'll find prayers teaching you how to talk to God about suffering, how to talk to God about fear and anxiety, how to talk to God about all kinds of deep things. They modeled the very thing that I did not know how to do, that I struggled to do. And so what I have, church, what I have been learning to do is to make these prayers my own, at least to try. And over the next few weeks, I hope to do that together as a church with a few of these prayers to, um, in a culture that offers Lots of reasons to not pray, at least this kind of praying. Uh, in a religious culture that rewards only public spirituality, the Psalms help us take back some ground that God wants us to stand on. Teaches us how to talk to God, how to tarry with God over the deep needs of our heart. And so we're going to learn to do that together over the next few weeks. This morning, specifically, we're going to start in Psalm 73, talking about the thing that I think you need to learn to talk to God about, if talking to God is going to mean anything at all and that is talking to God about our doubts, learning to talk to God about something that almost seems counterintuitive to talk to him about. But he gives us this prayer to teach us. Psalm 73, verse 1. We'll read 1, 2, and 3. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But as for me, hang on to this, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This prayer is written by a guy named Asaph. And we'll talk about him a little bit more in a minute. Verse 2, he prays this. He describes, he's in a conflicted emotional state. He's in a difficult place spiritually. He describes it in verse 2. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Almost slipping in the Old Testament is a metaphor that describes someone who's having a crisis of faith. Uh, to fall off the path completely in the Old Testament is a metaphor for those who have abandoned God, those who are apostate, right? So to be someone whose feet are slipping on the verge of stumbling is to be someone who is teetering on the very edge of deconversion. Uh, and that's where Asaph was. He's doubting what he believes. And he describes it this way. Uh, in verse 1 and in verse 3, he begins to describe how he got to this crisis of faith. In verse 1, he states the thing he knows he's supposed to believe, the theology. Truly God is good to Israel. Truly God is good to Israel. That is a foundational truth to him and to the people of God. But in verse 3, he says, that's not my experience right now. I see something very different than that. I look around and I see the righteous are hurting they're shriveling, and the wicked are the ones who prosper. So he begins to identify in his life there is a space that's widening. There is a gap that's widening, and it's this space between what he knows he's supposed to believe and yet what he sees all around him that challenges belief in the thing he knows he's supposed to believe. So God is good to Israel, but I see the prosperity of the wicked, and what he's describing is, is my reality is incongruent with my theology, and between theology and reality, I'm stumbling. I'm stumbling. I'm in a bit of a crisis of faith. I don't know if I can trust God anymore. Have you ever been there? Um, do you know what it feels like to experience that gap maybe between theology and reality, or at least the reality that feels most real to you? Maybe what God says I'm supposed to believe and then what I see and hear around me that makes it hard to believe what I'm supposed to believe. I think that doubt falls generally into two categories. Maybe this is an oversimplification I don't think it is. I think doubt falls into two categories. One is I doubt what God says about himself. Or two, I doubt what God says about me. And at least pastorally, all of my interaction with doubt and then personally, my own interaction with doubt in my own life is that it falls into those two. I'm either having a hard time believing. I'm stumbling over what God says about himself or I'm stumbling over what God says about me. And so maybe it's like this. God says he's in control and that's the thing I'm supposed to believe, right? But then in reality, my life is out of control and I'm having a hard time seeing that God is working or holding or sovereign in any of it. Or maybe God says that he's good, but my life does not feel good and I'm having a hard time experiencing the goodness of life surrounded in the by the broken pieces of my broken life. I'm doubting that he is who he says he is. And so there's this space that's widening. There's this gap in my life. Or God says that I am loved by him and Jesus, but I know me and I know my thoughts and I know my past and I know my failures. And there is no way that God can know about me what I know about me and love me still. And so I am doubting. I am who God says I am. I'm doubting that God is to me what he says he is to me. I'm stumbling. My feet are slipping. I can see the ground getting closer. I don't know if I can believe this anymore. What do I do? Psalm 73 offers this really interesting answer. Talk to God about it. 
Have a conversation with God about your doubts. Talk to him about your doubts. I don't know how to do that. I've never done that before. Well, I've got really good news. There's a prayer written by someone who was where you are and can guide you. Something so important to say. There are five parts to that prayer, and we're going to dig into those. Before we do that, don't miss something. God put this prayer in your Bible because he wants to have this conversation with you. All of you, no matter who you are. He put this prayer in your Bible, which means a couple things. It means, one, that doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal part of the Christian life. Um, the guy writing this prayer, his name's Asaph. First Chronicles 6 tells us about him. Do you know what he did for a living? He's a worship leader. Uh, he led in the temple. He led worship services for God's people in God's presence. He was like Bleeker, but probably not as good because Bleeker's the best. I think Bleeker's like part angel or something, so it's not fair. Um, but Asaph, that's what he did for a living. And so what that meant as a worship leader, Asaph, he had a front row seat to the work of God, the reality of God. What would have been true about him simply simply because of what he did for a living is he saw lives changed in the presence of God. He had been given gifts by God to use for God. As we read through the prayer, you learn that this guy's really creative. He's an artist. He's good with words. He's used all of those things to, to lead. Israel's king entrusted him to pastor Israel's people in worship. And so what that has to mean is that his life included really high spiritual highs and his life included times of being filled with faith and courage and all the things that you would say mark a really healthy, vibrant life with God and and his life included doubt so crippling that when he talks to God about it, he says, it almost took me out. It almost took me out. I almost fell off the path. I almost quit my job and left the temple and broke my covenant and abandoned my people. Is that, I wonder, the kind of person that you think of when you think of someone filled with doubt? Do you think of the people who've written parts of the Bible? You think of people who lead in really public ways. I think there is this assumption about doubt that it's just for immature Christians or this assumption about doubt that it's just for new Christians or the presence of doubt means that my Christianity is insincere and it's just not true. The guy who wrote parts of the Bible who led in the temple, the very place where heaven and earth intersect, he was a part of great works of God and there was so much health that was part of his life and godliness part of his life and there was a lot of doubt that was part of his life. It's part of mine. It's part of my story, part of my struggle. If it's part of yours, I need you to hear something and, and, and maybe it's the only thing you hear, but hear it. If you struggle with doubt, if it's part of your story, that does not make you an outsider. You don't have this crazy secret that makes everyone else a full Christian and you're some sort of half Christian. Doubt is normal. Not only that, but you know who knew that it was normal? God. And so what he did is he made provision for you to talk to him about it. He put it in your Bible because he wants to have this conversation. And I think that that's like doubt naturally makes us feel distant from God. Maybe like we've betrayed God because we have doubts in our life. And so we usually only talk to ourselves about our doubt. Uh, and maybe seldomly we'll talk to somebody else about our doubt, but we never even think to talk to God about it. He wants you to. He invites you to. Psalm 73 is here because that's what he wants. Uh, I talked to a friend of mine um, a couple months ago, and he was telling me a story uh, that when he was 18, when he was about to go off to college, his dad took him on uh, a, a trip to the mountains. They went on a hike. 
His, he was uh, raised in a really godly home. His dad was a really godly, righteous man. And uh, they went on the hike. And at one point in the hike, his dad sat him down and basically said, the reason we're doing this, the reason I wanted to go on this trip is because there's a conversation I want to have with you. And he said, I want to ask you something. Is there anything about our relationship? Before you leave the home, before you go off to college, I want to know, is there anything about our relationship that you've been scared to talk to me about? Is there a, a conversation that has felt off limits to you? Is there something that you've wanted to talk about, but you've been scared of how it might go? Is there any of that? And if there is some, I want to hear about it. I created this moment because I want to hear about it. Don't hold back. I want to hear from you. What he was doing as a godly father is creating this moment with his son and fighting for a conversation that would remove fear and welcome honesty. What a gift. This isn't the point that parents... Would you do that with your kids, with your young kids, with your teenage kids, with your adult children? It will bless them to create a moment to fight for a conversation that removes fear and that welcomes honesty. But see this, this is what God is doing in Psalm 73, that God puts it in your Bible. God is creating this moment, making space, and could you fight for the faith to believe that the very God that you doubt wants to actually talk to you about those doubts? and not just talk to you about him, but has created a moment, set up a way that you can talk to him, and there's fear removed and honesty welcome. Here's how to do that. Five parts to Psalm 73, five movements to the prayer on how to talk to God about the doubt. One, name the doubt. This is what he does in verses one, two, and three. It's the part that we covered already. For him, it was, I'm doubting that you're good to your people because the wicked prosper. He describes the gap. He, he identifies and defines why the crisis exists in the first place. Uh, for me at times, it's been, God, I am doubting that you're real because I don't feel your presence like I think maybe I should or other people do. Or I'm doubting that you can love me because I'm still so filled with sin and I should be further along than I am right now. Whatever it is, name it. Define the gap between the truth that you're supposed to believe and the experience you're having and do that work and tell God. Tell God. Two. That's one. This is two. And this surprised me. Defend it. Make an argument for it. Make your best argument for it to God. Here's what I expect to find in the Bible. Asaph says, uh, you know, God, I, you're good to Israel. I'm stumbling uh, because the wicked are prospering. And then verse four is the answer. Verse four rescues the tension. Verse four is like some thing you read on a coffee cup, and it's like, but you're going to work it all out, right? You would expect to, 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 to try to get out of that kind of uncomfortable honesty as quickly as possible because that feels like the most maybe spiritual thing to do. It's not. In verse four, verses, for nine verses, verses four through 12, you know what he's doing? He makes a case for his doubt. He defends it to God. He doesn't move to the answer. He doesn't move to the resolution. He says things like, they are not in trouble as others are God. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. I've seen the wicked. I've seen their lives. Uh, behold, in verse 12, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. His doubt, like so many of us, was based in the reality of really complicated things around him. Specifically, his was based in the reality of real injustice around him, people profiting off of the oppression of other people, specifically the oppression of God's people. 
that he has seen with his own eyes and what he sees appears to contradict what God has said and he lets God know and doesn't feel some sort of false pressure to minimize the cause of that doubt. No, it was based on things in life that are hard to reconcile sometimes with the things that God says. I wonder what, I wonder what that would sound like for you. I wonder. Name your doubt and then defend it. You know, God, I have really good reasons, I feel like, for doubting the way I doubt. You know, God, I'm having a hard time believing that you are good. You say you're good. I'm having a hard time believing it because, God, I've lost in ways that you could have protected me from, and you didn't. I have a hard time believing you love me, God, because here's the list of all my sins, and here are all the times that I said I wouldn't, and then I did, and broken promise after broken promise after broken promise, and you're making your case to God. God, it seems like life is easier for people who don't follow you. Don't rush past the why. Life is complicated. It's complicated. Uh, the, The... what Asaph says, right, is he, he, he did not come by his doubt by making false accusations against God. He came by his doubt because he had his Bible in one hand, and then he uh, saw what was going around, on around him in the world, and what he read seemed incongruent with what he saw, and so he trusts God enough to tell God, but then also to make his best argument before God. They prosper, the righteous wither, and I'm having a hard time. Here's why this is so important. He empties his pockets with all of his raw, ugly thoughts, lays them out for God. This is why I feel the way I feel. And if you don't do that, if you don't lay it all out in prayer for God, you will feel like you are keeping something hidden from God that he actually already knows about your heart. But when you keep it hidden from God or when you uh, feel like maybe you have to protect God from some of your uglier thoughts, maybe you protect God from some of your more honest and raw thoughts, then it widens the gap. It doesn't shorten it. Because it rehearses to you this belief that God can't handle my honesty. Three, name it, defend it. Three, tell God where your doubt is leading you. Or or maybe consider before God where your doubt is leading you if you're not sure. Thirteen, by the way, I think this is one of the most important parts of the prayer. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, if I had stood up in the temple and shared this with everybody. If I had said, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. People don't move from belief to unbelief. There are no true deconversion stories in the sense that someone used to believe something and now believes nothing. That doesn't happen. There are simply stories of people who exchange one religion for another. Simply stories of people who leave one set of beliefs for another set of beliefs. Everyone, every human is a believer in something. Everyone has a system that they ascribe to. Everyone has a a list of convictions or theology or beliefs. Everyone is a believer. And so hear me. What we see Asaph tell God is after naming the beliefs he's having a hard time believing and then defending those, he has the honesty and the trust in God to say, here are the beliefs I'm starting to hold on to. Um, The beliefs he's starting to consider in place of the beliefs that he's doubting, right? And he has the self-awareness to know, I am leaving these truths and I am starting to, I am almost, everyone, nobody lets go 
and then just has empty hands. Everyone lets go and reaches for something else. And he says, here's the thing I'm reaching for. Did you hear it? None of this matters. None of it matters. That's the belief that's beginning to overtake the belief he's having a hard time believing. In vain have I kept my heart clean. All for nothing I washed my hands of innocence. He's beginning to exchange. Remember where it started? God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. He's beginning to exchange that because of his doubt for this. Purity doesn't matter. Godliness doesn't matter. Righteousness doesn't matter. Being a whole person doesn't matter. How you treat others doesn't matter. Hope for a better world doesn't matter. And then in verse 15, he says, I almost betrayed a generation of your people. I almost betrayed a generation of your children. Instead of leading your people in worship, I was thinking about making a job change and using my platform and my post to lead your people away from you. He sees where his doubt is leading him. And this, this is where it turns for him. This is the very beginning of the pivot back towards God. This is the very early stages of him finding a footing in his doubt because he realized where his doubt was leading him was somewhere that he could not go. Righteousness does matter. Uh, I don't want to betray a generation of your children. In conversation with God about his doubts, he is stumbling and then he has the honesty and the courage to see where what life on the ground looks like. And he says, I don't want that life. I don't want to fall. He's being, goodness, please hear this. This is something we need to recover in our world that is just so uh, infused with, with, with relativism and relative thinking. He is being intellectually honest. Many people get to this point in their doubt and they're not intellectually honest or emotionally honest. They say something like, I will just take all the things I like and then leave behind all the things that are hard to believe. And it doesn't work like that. What we want to do is we want to, we want to just select, we want to pick which parts of life we want God to influence and which parts of life we don't. Like there is wrong in the world. I can't believe in God. So I will leave God behind and be a good person. Why? I will leave God behind and then I will uh, commit to or I will live or I will depend on things in life that don't make sense unless what God says is true. Like to have any sort of moral vision in your life, to make any sort of claims of justice, to to say at all, this is the way things should be. It depends on origins and endings. How you answer the question, where did this all come from? And how you answer the question, where is this all going? And and if there is no God, there are no good answers to those questions. If there is no God, there is no good reason to be a good person. If there is no God, rob a bank. Don't. Don't. At least if you do, don't tell anyone that I told you to do that, right? What is... There's something really, really uh, subtly beautiful and helpful about this point of the prayer. He has not yet resolved the things that created the doubt. He hasn't. He doesn't have good answers for those things. But he has, what he has done, is he has counted the cost of letting the doubt rule him. He has weighed what life looks like if the doubt wins. And in counting the cost, being intellectually honest, he found a bit of footing because he remembers there are so many things about life that I love that just don't make sense without God. There are so many things like, I I, I love leading in worship. I love leading God's people. I I believe righteousness does matter. And he is honest enough, honest enough to know that those things come from and with God and you lose them 
if you lose God. And he says, I don't want to do that. He refuses to act like they don't. What would that sound like, I wonder? To name your doubt to God, to defend it, but then to begin considering or being honest with God about where your doubt is leading you. Would you ask this question in conversation with God? If you have any plan to actually do this later. Who will I become God if the doubt wins? Cynical? Bitter? Hopeless? Dishonest? Uh, Maybe ask this question in conversation with God. What in my life that matters to me will matter less if my doubt wins? When I think about my own wrestle with this, this is the place I always come back to in my own wrestle with doubt. I think about that passage in John 6 with Peter when all the disciples leave. Jesus had hundreds of disciples and they all walk away and Jesus looks at Peter and says, are you guys gonna go too? And Peter says, where would we go? It's, it's not a built out, thoughtful statement of faith. It's just, where would we go? We don't have all the answers, but we at least are honest enough to know if we leave here looking for life, we will not find it. The only way I know how to make sense of deep joy in life, the only way I know how to make sense of real love I have for people in my life, the tragic pain I've experienced in life, the only way I know how to make sense of it is God. And if God is right about the story he tells, and if God is true about who he says he is, so I may not have all the doubt resolved, I don't, but there is a place I won't let doubt take me because there's a price I'm not willing to pay. Blaise Pascal has this quote where he says, Jesus is the object of all things. Jesus is the center to which all things tend or gravitate. And he says this, whoever knows him, whoever knows him knows the reason for everything. Not the answer to everything. Not, there's no lingering questions or frustrations or confusion, but whoever knows him knows the reason for everything, sees life through the lens of Jesus and his centrality. And while there might be things that are still blurry about this life, to lose that means I'd be completely blind. Completely blind. Four, name your doubt, defend your doubt. Consider where your doubt is leading you. What you would have to leave, what you would have to abandon, that you don't want to abandon, if the doubt wins. And then four, doubt your doubts, which is different than what I thought it was. Eight, uh, 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Doubt your doubts. It takes faith to keep doubting. Um, it takes faith to, to keep believing the things, right? There is evidence around him that challenged that God is good to his people, but also evidence around him that pointed to God's goodness. So he began to doubt his doubts, but here's what it meant for him. He did not just sit with his thoughts and go point for point with the argument, right? It wasn't an argument that caused his doubt. It was an experience, something he saw. And so the beginning place to doubting his doubts was he went to a place where he would see something else, Uh, He immersed himself in a place that would challenge the doubts, not just intellectually, but his whole person, right? Instead of focusing on the prosperity of the wicked, he went to see if he could see some of the goodness of God that he was having a hard time believing. Verse 17 says, I went into the sanctuary of God. Remember, he's a worship leader. So he went to the temple to do his job. He, He stayed committed to the things that God had called him to. He stood before the people. He picked up his guitar or harp or whatever they did. And he led the people in worship. I love this. Please hear me. He led the people in worship. 
And he declared the goodness of God that he, in that very moment, was struggling to believe. You know how to doubt your doubts? Um, ask hard questions, for sure. Uh, read good books about defending faith and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, some questions have great answers. They really do. Some questions have answers that are maybe more disappointing because there's still a lot of mystery to life. But doubt is not just about questions and answers. A huge part of doubting your doubts is doing the very things that your doubts would say you're disqualified from doing. Asaph, you can't lead worship right now. Uh, you're in the middle of a crisis of faith. You're on the verge of calling God a liar. Take a vacation. Uh, put out some resumes. Uh, take a break. Get a new job until you figure your stuff out. But your doubt has disqualified you from doing the kinds of things that normal people of God do. How often, those of you who doubt, how often do you hear that accusing voice in your doubt? You can't read your Bible with the doubts that you have. You can't lead or serve in church when you're not even sure that God really loves you. You can't come in this room and worship like everyone else. Don't even think about lifting your hands or acting like you enjoy God when you know that your heart is riddled at the same time with so many questions. You can't pray and talk to God about your doubts. Do you see what's happening there? What has taken control of your life in that moment? The doubt. Look, which I understand the influence of doubt, but it makes no sense because doubt is not, I don't believe, doubt is I'm struggling to believe. And the struggle is not just doubt alone. The struggle is a mixture of both doubt and faith. Why does doubt get all the power? Like we only allow the doubt to speak. We only allow the doubt to disqualify. We never allow the faith to factor in and believe. What we believe underneath that is that it's all or nothing, right? We believe that until I get this all right, I can't be all in. You should doubt that. You should doubt that. You should challenge that. It's not true. The best thing for you to do, the best place for you to be, the best things for you to commit to are the very things that doubt as a liar says you're not allowed to do because faith is not the absence of all doubt. Faith is the pursuit of God even in the midst of doubt. Would you hear me? Obeying God, loving God, being here, worshiping God, being with his people, reading his word, offering your gifts as an act of love to God, singing his songs, lifting your hands. Those are not things that are only reserved for people with strong faith. They're for everyone. Uh, for the Christian, right? For those whose faith would be, maybe you'd say it's weak or I'm doubting or I'm new to all this or it's complicated or it's shaky for any kind of faith because for the Christian, the quality of that faith is not what makes you worthy to do those things. It's the object of the faith. And God is not new. He's eternal. He's not shaky. He's immovable. God is not riddled with questions. He is the very answer. He's not weak. He is strong. And would you hear me? A weak faith in a strong God is more than enough. It's more than enough. Because I love this. There is no doubt on God's end. I, I, don't, I don't think you'll believe me unless I show it to you. 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's telling God, as he's rounding out the prayer, he's telling God, this is who I was to you in my doubt. This is how I treated you in my doubt. I was like a wounded animal backed into a corner, fighting you, God, arrogant and brutish, like a beast towards you. In all of that, how was God to him? What did that kind of doubt do to the relationship with God? What did that kind of doubt, how did God respond? 23, nevertheless, 
I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. In my doubt, he says, I was an animal to you, God. I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was uh, offensive to you. How did that affect you? Who were you to me? And all of that, he never left. He never left. He held his hand. Do you know why he didn't slip? It begins in verse 2. I'm stumbling. I almost lost my footing. you know why he didn't slip? Well, because he figured it all out. No. Well, because he got every question answered. No. Because he firmly held to his beliefs. No, no, no. On Friday, my family went to the zoo, my wife and our three kids. And Ayla, my three-year-old, she spent uh, half the time on my shoulders at the zoo, walking around for hours, which was great because it was really cold. Uh, <laughs> most of that, she just enjoyed. Just was on my shoulders, just oohed and awed and laughed. And every so often, though, she would get scared of falling and would, like, would respond. She would either hold onto my head or... Um, she would, she would like grab handfuls of my hair, which was awesome. Uh, she would like maybe wrap her arms around my face. And then once she felt safe again, she would, she would let go and kind of go back to normal. You know why she didn't fall? Because I had decided that she wasn't going to fall. The reason she didn't fall was because I uh, was not going to let her fall and I had the power to keep her from falling. It didn't matter if she held on tight it didn't matter if she grabbed my hair. It didn't matter if she hugged my head. What she did was not what kept her safe. Her not falling had nothing to do with her holding on to me and had everything to do with her dad holding on to her. He says, you hold my right hand. I didn't slip because you were holding on to this whole time that I'm angry or I'm doubting or I'm confused or I'm falling. That whole time, you stayed the same, God. God's love does not shrink in response to your doubt. Do you know that? His hold on you does not fail when you start stumbling. And right now, maybe you're in a season, maybe you're in a long portion of your life where you feel like you're grasping, believing that this thing that you have with God is all up to you to keep yourself from hitting the ground. My friend, it's never been about your ability. Never. You are safe, not because of the handle that you have on your doubts. You are safe because of the hold God has on you. And the Christ-secured, blood-bought, covenantal promise that he will never let you go. So it ends. Part five. Name it. Defend it. Consider where it's leading you. Doubt your doubts. And then finally, you come back to the truth. 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Pause real quick. What a beautiful verse. What a beautiful verse. I've quoted that verse. I memorized that verse probably five years ago. Quote it often. Whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Who knew? that that verse was birthed out of honest conversation with God about doubt. Some of the most beautiful statements ever made. Uh, doubting Thomas, when the resurrected Jesus sees him, that ends with him making the most explicit Christological statement in the New Testament, my Lord and my God. Do you see some of the fruit of this kind of personal work with God? 
I think maybe sometimes we are afraid of it because we think, what if it leads me to a place I don't want to go? The history, the theological tradition that you sit in is some of the most rich and true and pure things ever spoken about God have been spoken by people in conversation with God who are struggling to believe them. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. It starts with the statement he knows he's supposed to believe, and it's a very general theological statement. Truly, God is good to Israel. And then he's honest about the gap that exists in his life, and he names the doubt, he defends it, he tells God where he's leading him. But then when he doubts his doubts, and he sees who God is to him, even in his doubt, he comes back to the truth, but he says it differently at the end of the prayer. He doesn't just generally say, truly, God is good to Israel. After walking through all of that, he says this, God is good to me, to me. The, thing, the very thing he was struggling to believe, he personalizes. God wants to talk to us about the deepest parts of our life. He wants us to tarry with him in conversation and, and not just talk about the knee-jerk cultural things, but be honest about all kinds of things in our life. And he gives us a guide if we don't know how to do that, and that includes talking to him about our doubt. And if we do, if we commit to that, what he promises to us, what he invites us. Maybe the opportunity we have is to actually not live a life where doubt completely goes away, but the opportunity is that maybe there are some things that we believe a little stronger than we thought we did, that we believe a little stronger than we knew we did, and that we only will discover if we do this hard work with God of being honest with him. Would you pray with me? And I wonder if, if what we could do is we could hang on to the very last portion of that prayer together. Maybe you're not here, and that's okay. Um, maybe this would, this would just seem like too much of a stretch for you, and that's okay. But I wonder if there's some things that you've been questioning, some things that you've been doubting, that you would fight for the faith to personalize like Asaph does. Not just God is good to people, maybe God is good to me. Maybe for you, it's even the first time in prayer where you'd say something like, instead of God, you are loving. Say, God, you love me. God's real. God is real to me. One day God will right all, every wrong. One day God will restore the things that I've lost. And in that fight for faith, not ignoring or dismissing the doubt, you could come to a place where you say to God, I believe. I believe. You're good to me. You love me. You are who you say you are. And then feel the freedom to surround that with as much honesty as your heart requires. It's hard. Would you just respond? Would you talk to God?
God, we love you. What a gift, God, that you delight in hearing from us, your sons and daughters. I think, God, I'm, you know who I'm mindful of now is, is maybe the, the person in the room that this feels like the biggest stretch for. Maybe, Lord, would they have the patience, even just the self-awareness to not hold themselves to the pressure of processing all of it all at once. But maybe you just moved them gently from a place of, I can't talk to God about this, to a place of, he actually might want to hear about these things. Or maybe, Lord, you, you, you would do a work where you would take someone and put them in a place of, making a faith claim for the very first time, saying something about you they thought they'd never say about you that's true about you or true about them. Would you do it, Holy Spirit? We love you. We need you. So we pray. Amen.